Welcome to this episode of Mystics and Skeptics. Now here's your host, Sybil. Hello, fellow humans. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are. Today we have David Daniel Gonzalez. David Daniel Gonzalez is a radio and podcast host of Mystic Skeptic. He's a producer and researcher who explores diverse topics such as alternative history, ancient mysteries, and the Bible. He has interviewed many scholars and personalities. Uh, his audio documentaries, programs, and books are meant to educate and build bridges of understanding and collaboration between different communities. You can find his podcasts and other programs online and on YouTube. David, welcome to Mystics and Skeptics. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. So, David, you know, a topic that's fascinated me, right, and uh, is uh, demons or demonology. It's, I, I feel like demons or spiritual evil spirits, you know, have permeated since ancient times, right? In ancient Egypt, Babylonia, Mesopotamia, what have you, throughout, you know, through the traditional religions and scriptures. And even today, people sometimes attribute mental illness to on demonic beings. So I want to get your perspective, because I know you've authored a book called um, Demonology in Ancient Israel. You know, what you've learned and what do you think, how are demons, um, how do they uh, enter into Judaism, for example? And what is the background of the whole concept of demonology? Well, in my, um, in my understanding of it, it has to do with um, trying to make sense of the spiritual realm. Um, you know, when you look at ancient um, civilizations, there was always fears of, of the unknown, including uh, the storm, the wind, the fire, and things like that. And in elementary um, mythology, um, everything gets personified. It's almost like, um, you know, Pandora's uh, urn, it was more of an urn than a box. When she opens it, all these uh, diseases and bad things happen. And in some of the images, they have it as monsters and demons and things that come out. So as time progresses, um, these um, religions or, or cults become more um, developed and they start um, giving, assigning them personalities and, and the ability to harm uh, individuals. So this is comes well in um, early or, or Israelite religion and that's uh, the topic of the book, um, trying to look at a rational approach to this form of mystical uh, musings of the ancients. And without dismissing that there is a supernatural uh, realm, we can see how some of these ideas came about. That's helpful. You know, I always wonder sometimes, you know, people, um, like you said, you know, people before they were... Um, before science per se or rational thought came to be, they would explain the unknown, you know, and attribute it to evil spirits or demons or what have you, like you said. Um, David, in terms of, you know, in rabbinic literature, you know, from um, during, before the second temple era, for example, is there any really reference to demons or evil spirits? Well, we have to differentiate between the, what it's commonly known as the rabbinic period and the uh, second Temple period, or um, what people would consider to be the intertestamental period uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, when a lot of um, 
different um, books that are non-canonical that neither the, the Protestants nor the Jews consider to be authoritative. Uh, at that time is when most of the demonology was developed. If we look back in the, in the Bible itself, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, there's little references here and there, but it's also not fully uh, addressed. And what is intriguing is that there actually are passages in the Torah where it's almost like a given that there are such a thing as demons. And to me, uh, it's a little disturbing and it's a little um, interesting that they just assume that you know that there's uh, goats in the mountains that people worship and, and they sacrifice uh, people or things to. And, and then when they enter uh, Canaan, they start talking about all these deities and, and uh, evil forces that they're encountering. So um, I think that that's a crucial uh, aspect to bring up before we go into Enoch and all the other books go deeper into it. You, because it, there's the reference is pretty sparse in a ancient you know rabbinic literature like you said do you think the foreign influences of uh the canaanites you know and even mesopotamia or even egyptians played a role into incorporating uh, in jewish mythology the concept of demons that we see later on after the second temple era well in the, and that's my my biggest pet peeve is uh parallelomania where they say that every religion is the same because you can clearly if you study Babylonian, um, like their deities, like their pantheon and Egyptian pantheon. And then you compare that with the, the Jewish, um, what the scholars would call the, the heavenly um, the court where you have God. And then Hasatan is, is like a, an, uh, a district attorney attack against the people, like he's an accuser. And then you have Michael and Raphael and all the other guys hmm. there. Uh, this heavenly tribunal that that God uh, holds in um, in Jewish um, in, in geology and all that is very different from the stuff you see from the Egyptians and the Babylonians. Um, you know, the Babylonians had the the gods who were angry and they were fighting each other, and there was monsters. Uh, some of those monsters appear in uh, Job and Isaiah. It talks about Rahab and the Behemoth and all those guys. And then in the Egyptian pantheon, you have the, the gods of the, of the underworld and they're judging mankind. And then you have uh, a hippo and other things coming through. And none of those uh, uh, beings come into play in the, in the Israelite uh, version. You have uh, very elaborate uh, human-like characteristics of, of them. The only weird thing is that, as you see in Babylonian and Egyptian uh, mythology, they, you have these winged figures that, uh, that that's where we get the seraphs and the angels from. So to me, that's the, the main connection. But uh, when it comes down to the forces of evil, they're completely different. And they have different uh, abilities and, and uh, aspects to them. So I think that that's... Uh, so as the Israelites are, are meditating on reality and their experience of the world, they're uh, expressing that in a, in a more narrow and, and specific way. And like I said, the oldest book that describes uh, the, 
interaction between God and the angels is a bit of a joke. And that's who they discuss uh, the accuser, Hasatan, which in Jewish uh, folklore would not be the same as the devil, but it has a lot of the characteristics of, a, of someone who's trying to trip humanity or put God to the test. You know, when you say uh, a Satan, right, like it derives from Satan, like you said, you know, but uh, the whole divine counsel concept, you know, just I, I don't want to diverge too much, but it's just really, you know, it's something I want to delve deeper in a different episode. And, you know, uh, and even the book of Enoch, for example, are they accepted authoritative um, uh, scripture for uh, for Judaism? Uh, well, the book of Job and um, maybe, you know, the passage of Isaiah that people have um, described as the, the fall of the angels um, has like a, the, the thing with Judaism is that there's many perspectives. So if you start reading the Midrashim, the um, creative interpretations of, of the Hebrew scriptures, they go into details that um, they are kind of like, uh, you take them with a grain of salt. There's stories where the, the serpent had relations with Eve and then demons came out of that or Lilith, which is uh, mentioned in Isaiah, which is the, the goddess of the night or the demoness that steals children. Um, it's not really um, something that everybody agrees on or thinks that it's a physical um, thing or, or manifested in the, in the human realm, but it's something that we know that, that can cause harm. So that's, that's the thing is that in Judaism, there's more leeway to consider things either metaphorical or spiritual, but not uh, like tangible. And right. in Christian circles, when they talk about the devil, um, the picture from the medieval paintings becomes almost like a dogmatic, like you have a, a guy living in an underworld, surrounded by his minions, uh, who's in a, on a throne trying to destroy the works of God. That is not something that Jews would resonate with because it's, it's not that specific, not a, a huge battle between good and evil as they would pray. I don't want to jump too much ahead, but I believe in the Old Testament. You know, there's references, for example, King Saul, you know, was possessed by evil spirits or or God had uh, dispatched uh, beings to trick Ahab to um, go into a battle, for example, that led, I think, to his death. But um, those references, for example, to me, it seems like even there are, if there are spiritual beings, demons, angels, what have you, they are all subservient and they, they do not act unless God wills it. Is that the Judaic point of view? Well, and, and this is where like my personal interpretation will come into play as well, because th there's contradictory things. Um, if we really think that God is the source of, of good and evil, like it says in, in one of the prophets, uh, then you would have, like you said, they they act under God's um, ruling or, or almost leash. Like if he allows destructive things to happen, like in the book of Job, it's only limited because God has ultimate control. It's not like the movies where the devil comes in and destroys a whole household and possesses everyone and everybody's vomiting and <laughs> like crazy and God is nowhere to be found. And God is almost like the weak um, source of healing. Like it, it, the priest gets all beat up and, and, barely someone makes it out that's not how it's portrayed in the bible but um in my interpretation of of these um discussions that are made in the in the scriptures there's also the element of um if if god is the one who is um prompting 
uh, these beans to do that, then you have to kind of, he's the one to blame if something uh, bad happens. So you have to kind of process it even more. Like what, what was the point of the story? What was the, what were we trying to convey? And if it's conveying that God does not appreciate some type of behavior, then the angels become the messengers and the avengers of God for chastising the people. So, um, and then with the demonic forces, you would have to incorporate other um, perspectives. So Enoch tries to say that there was a, a fallen group of angels. And the point what I was trying to get to is that I have a problem with that because angels in the original conception, they're supposed to not have a will. Angels are supposed to be automatically worshiping God. So for an angel to have free will and be able to rebel against God, it kind of goes against the whole point of an angel. Uh, and then they have uh, the ability to, to fight him. And the issue with fighting God is that you would immediately lose. God wouldn't allow for this ongoing battle to happen for thousands of years and for humans to be caught up in it um, because he is all-knowing and all-powerful. So it, it almost, you kind of like in a movie where they create drama and they allow for things to happen when they could have stopped them from the get-go. Uh, that's, to me, that's kind of difficult to process. Like God could have stopped Satan immediately, but they didn't even have a will to begin with. So how, how did they suddenly rebel and have all these other issues happen, like uh, have babies with women and have half demon? Um, so that's where it becomes more mythological and harder to um, believe in and, and incorporate into someone's theology. I haven't explored this deeper, but, you know, they say there's a hierarchy, right, in spiritual beings, right? You have the archangels, and then then they go down the chain. So uh, who knows uh, who these fallen angels, are they technically, you know, the ones that have no free will, or are they some other beings? But we can, you know, and there's also, isn't there a concept of, um, you know, with the ancient religions, for example, it was all about keeping order, right, and not have chaos in the society, but to keep everything under control, but then the whole emergence of apocalyptic, you know, good versus evil type of theology. I wonder if it fed into some of this, you know, angels versus demons, what have you. Isn't there, wasn't there like a war between angels and demons at one point? Is there something you can add to that? Sure. And, and this is, would be um, my um, different view than the, the Christian worldview regarding um, demonology is that if you look at the, the Yahad, the community of Qumran, which most people believe are Essenes, they believe that they were on the side of the, the, the angels or the beings of light. They were the children of light. And the pagans or the, the Romans who were um, the abusive regime that was uh, occupying um, Judea at that time, they are the children of Armelus or... Uh, their version of, of Hasatan. So you have this, you know, the, the, the people of God versus the people of uh, the evil one, uh, and they're going to have a final battle in the end days, and they thought the end days were going to be right around the corner, and, the, and it actually happened in the sense that they were um, murdered by the Romans. So um, if you take that to the next level, the Jews of that time felt that the people who worshiped different deities and who had uh, immoral practices in their eyes were serving a 
different realm that was uh, evil and, and destructive. So to suddenly switch it and say that the Jews that don't accept Christ are the demonic ones and that the uh, newly accepted into God's family, ex-pagans are the good guys, it to me is like upside down because the original premise from the majority of the Jewish groups at that time was that the, the people of God were the ones that were under the reign of, of the God of Israel and that any other group who didn't submit to that deity was under the, the spell of some type of demonic force. So even if, if the Gentiles joined the people of God, it would be under the auspices of the leadership of the, of the Jewish, um, you know, religious uh, folks. So whatever other outside group would be still under the power of, of uh, the evil one, and then slowly they would be coming under God's um, leadership. So it's almost like the Islamic version of, of the, the battle, the spiritual battle that is happening. Um, but the medieval church uh, came up with an even more convoluted and more complicated way that everybody other than them was demonic. Even the people that worship one God was demonic and, and to be able to oppress and, and destroy everybody else. So, uh, so it's, it's been thwarted a lot from the original premise from the Israelite perspective. Before we go into the second temple era, can we talk about the first temple era, right? Under King Solomon, you know, he's sometimes referenced as the first really great magician. What do you, I think he was actually blessed by God to, you know, with these powers via Archangel Michael came down and gave him the, the gift um, to speak to animals, to control demons or some type of beings. I don't know what they're called in uh, Judaism, but um, what, is there anything you can expand about King Solomon and, how, what is a Jewish view on that or your view? Well, I appreciate you uh, bringing up Solomon because he's the one of the main components of my book. And the, um, the source that I use is one of the many sources related to Solomon, but it's called the Testament of Solomon. And in that, um, which is considered a Jewish Christian book, because it's, um, it's like around the time where um, there was Jewish followers of Jesus who um, both... Um, incorporated Judaism and um, faith in, in Jesus being the Messiah, but it also has Greek elements and it has horoscope elements. So it has like three different layers, but from the main crux of the book, it discusses how he was giving the power to reign over all beings, including uh, demons and angels. And he was assisted by the demons to create the temple. Uh, in other Jewish sources, it says it was angels who helped him build the first temple and that there was no, uh, human um, tool use for the carving of the rocks, uh, even though it says in scripture that it was the Lebanese um, cohort who collaborated with him to build the temple. Um, and then him having all kinds of ruses and conflicts with those demons. And there's some really weird ones, one that doesn't have a head and one that I think has a body of a horse. So there's, again, the musings of, of a mystic of that time. It just Describing all these ailments as demons. And then there's also a lot about sexual immorality that, that Solomon was partaking of, uh, which was prompted about through witchcraft and his involvement with uh, women from foreign um, nations. So what makes the, the book um, Jewish Christian is that it's compared to Jesus and that Solomon failed and that Jesus didn't. Um, 
but at the end of the of it all is this um ongoing uh, conversation that is um, brought up in different jewish sources that solomon's wisdom was so great that he had power over the uh, supernatural elements and um and that the the demons bowed down to him and and followed his decrees at that time but was he sanctioned by god to have these powers you mentioned witchcraft and what have you and that that is forbidden right divination and all this stuff sorcery what do you think so the angel michael holds the the power over the demons and then he's the one that gives um solomon a special ring and with that ring he um is able to imprison the demons and harness their power um so it's again it's it's, it's like a dramatic element like you know, he's not supposed to, but he gives him the ring. And then with the ring, he does something godly, but with demons. So, so it's like a, like a play. It's a, it's a um, literary tactic to, to tell a story and mm-hmm. to teach a lesson that to stay away from immorality and from paganism. So let's move on to the Second Temple era, right? I think that's where uh, you, you have Jewish conflicts, not only internal conflicts, correct me if I'm wrong, within the Jewish communities, but also then you have Rome, the Romans who had the greatest, strongest empire at the time. Can you describe the atmosphere and then how were, how did demons and these spirit, spirituality, spiritual beings come into play? Well, again, th- these are scriptures that are not considered canonical. So you have mm-hmm. um, different mystical groups trying to make sense of their surroundings and what's going on. So, um, you know, you start seeing in the prophetic writings that they start uh, personifying the different nations. So in uh, Daniel, you see that uh, each nation is an animal or a part of a statue, and they're all um, monster-like creatures. Um, and then um, later on, you start seeing these um, demons taking, um, again, pers- personalities, and they they serve a purpose of creating a conflict between God and his people. Um, and then I wanted to discuss how Beelzebub became a thing. Uh, in that same book, um, the Testament of Solomon talks about uh, Beelzebub being the exarch of the demons. And when Jesus was um, casting out demons uh, in his uh, three-year ministry, he gets uh, accused of being, um, you know, working with Beelzebub or, or being one of his agents and he says that, um, that you would have to be, how can Beelzebub uh, cast out other demons because they're his friends? So, but if you break down the, the name uh, Beelzebub, it's the original is Baal Sebub, and Baal was the god of the Canaanites, and Sebub was um, flies or excrement or the, the area where he lived. So the book, uh, The Lord of the Flies, is the title or the name of Beelzebub, which means um, the Canaanite god that was uh, worshipped through defecation. So there's a translation of that passage where uh, they actually go to the, the, the root and they say, calling someone Beelzebub is like telling them that they dwell in, in feces. Mm-hmm. And at that time, uh, the Jews wanted nothing to do with latrines and places like that and they felt that the Canaanites were the ones who um, were more into the bodily functions so it was accusing him of being a pagan of being someone who's in league with the things of darkness 
and later in, in Jewish rabbinical thought, um, demons dwell in the latrines or in the areas where people uh, release themselves. So it's very interesting if you know the background where all these ideas come from. You might know, I'm trying to recollect, isn't there like a story when Jesus was um, getting rid of these demons that he cast them into swine or something? Do you know that story? What was all that about? There's actually an interesting interpretation. Um, I don't know the source, but I heard it from a friend of mine where they say that um, the, the whole story is a metaphor uh, in relation to the Romans. Because if you notice, um, Jews did not, um, well, there was always Jews that didn't follow the rules, but let's say in general, Jews did not raise pigs, especially in, uh, in Judea. So he's in the, the recent of the Gerasenes or something like that, and he's passing by and Jesus is known, and this is how we know that he was a religious Jew. He's known for not being in non-Jewish um, areas. Like he went to Samaria, but the, they mm-hmm. were... They were Jewish in a sense of like they, they worship similarly to, to the Jewish community. Uh, in that area, you have a guy who's raising pigs and then he's demon possessed and he's hanging out in tombs and Jesus did not hang out in tombs either, uh, like most Jews. And then um, he cast out the demons into the pigs. So for uh, a Jewish uh, gentleman like him to have any involvement with anything related to paganism or the the racing of pigs, it, it almost seems like fantastical or outside of its purview. So somebody said that um, the pigs were a symbol of Rome and that the demonic man, maybe it was a Jew who had been paganized and had um, some type of connection to the, the witchcraft that the Romans uh, had. And it was a confrontation between the Jewish way of worshiping God in the Roman way of, of worshiping their deities and how there was a conflict between both. But what you hear from Christians, especially priests and people that work with mental health, they say that it's almost like the spirit of suicide because you notice the pigs went straight to the water to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. So that he was already um, feeling this despair and self-destructive behavior and Jesus was able to deliver him from that. And then the pigs, went ahead and finished um, what these demons were causing. So it's a very complicated, um, deep message that they're trying to convey with that story. First, can you educate us on the Babylonian Talmud and the Palestinian t- Jerusalem Talmud? What's the difference? Why are there two? Can, oh, and the time, when were they both written? Sure. So after around the time where the temple was destroyed in 70 um, AD or, or um BC, uh, I mean, EC, C, um, they, um, they wanted to compile uh, all the teachings that they had on how to keep the Torah. And they compiled this, um, this treatise called the Mishnah. So then there was two communities. There was a community um, of Judea or now Palestine, as it was um, renamed by the Romans. And then there was uh, the people that they were in Babylon because at that time the Jewish community was kicked out of um, Jerusalem and then later of all um, Judea. So, so you have two communities, one in Jabna and one in, um, in one of the, the cities of um, modern day Iraq. And they have an interpretation or commentary on the Mishnah. And those became the Jerusalem Talmud or the Babylonian Talmud. And what's interesting is that 
more rudimentary is the one from um, what is called Palestine in the classical terms. And then the one from Babylon is more mythical and it has more uh, elements of demonology of, um, you know, spiritual mystical stuff in it. So, um, you know, people combine them or they use one more than the other, but when it's all said and done, um, a lot of the stuff that I discuss in my book has to do with how at that time, and the, when you think of the Talmud, instead of thinking it as an older book, because people say, oh, well, the Talmud has nothing to do with the New Testament or with the Bible. Actually, the Talmud is a, it's almost like a library of Jewish ideas up until that time. So you have a lot of things that were passed on from the temple uh, period before the temple was destroyed that are still lingering and that is, and you see the, the proof of it is that a lot of the similar ideas are discussed in the New Testament and in the Talmud. So this idea of um, blindness being caused by a demon um, is discussed in the Talmud, that if you leave water out overnight and you drink it, you can go blind. I think there's a connection between that story and the story of the blind man in the Gospel of John, because um, Jesus uses saliva to to, uh, to try to cure one guy. And then, so there's there's little elements related to how possibly it was a demon um, originated sickness. And that's what you see in the Talmud that a lot of illnesses are, are connected to a demon. Is it true that the Babylonian Talmud, you know, is, there's a lot of references or, or aspects pulled from like Persian mythology? In general, like what, what I like to say, and I guess I'm biased because I, I believe that um, there's truth in the, in the Jewish sources. I think that there's common language that is used and common ideas. But again, it's like how authoritative do you want it to be? So in the Persian um, mythology, you have like the little demons or like dogs that like chase people around. Like when you maybe in the Babylonian, when you watch uh, Ghostbusters or um, The Exorcist, uh, those demons that, that are discussed, they come from those type of mythologies. And in, uh, in the Jewish view, you have more like illnesses and, and like things that are more tangible that are uh, addressed, like uh, catalepsy, blindness, epilepsy. And the, the danger is, is that you can go into some type of um, superstition and uh, self-blaming for having normal diseases. So the reason that I take a um, rationalistic approach towards demonology is because I'm afraid that people are still living in medieval times and they're still <laughs> a lot mm -hmm. of the uh, normal illnesses in based on their behavior. And they think it's a punitive God who's sending demons towards them when in reality it was those people at that time trying to make sense of things they knew very little about. So the best explanation that I've had from one of my professors is that in their world, the things that made you sick was a demon. And in our world, the things that makes us sick are viruses, bacteria, um, you know, congenitive diseases and all kinds of problems. So there was uh, the root of it was trying to make sense of the human experience and the way that they described it was in mystical spiritual terms but now we know that there is a mystical component to some of our our modern day illnesses because i've seen people who get very sad and depressed from being sick and then they die quicker than someone who 
has hope and a spiritual perspective that helps them overcome some of the aspects of the illness, not the full illness at times, but at least the, the, the lack of, of, um, of hope or, or ability to not let the illness take hold of their whole person to me would be a spiritual component in relation to all these um, diseases. Makes sense. Fear of some demons. You mentioned Lilith earlier. So thank you for touching on her, you know, but there's like Azazel in Leviticus, I think is referenced as Samael and Aramon. Who are these demonic beings? Are they, you know, even though they're in scripture, like what is their role? You know, if, if we're talking rationally about what was happening in the desert, you have Jews trying to uh, come closer to God. And they have this uh, ritual in Leviticus 16 of the, the Yom Kippur, um, you know, goats. So you have one that it is um, representative of the people and one that is uh, sent out. So there's one they put a blessing over and there's one that is sent out to cast away the sins. And it, it mentions this term Azazel and assumes that everybody understands what it is. And then later they say, oh, well, Azazel is a demon. So they're sacrificing the goat to the demon. But Azazel is supposed to be the, the, the goat itself. So the goat takes upon the trespasses of humanity and becomes Azazel. So again, it's, it's almost like in that time, they knew that there was something bad in relation to goats like there was something uh destructive because it mentions that there was people that were worshiping the, the goats in the mountains so it's like a jumbling different ideas so you have uh feeling guilty for whatever the the people did and trying to pass it on to um someone to exp- expiate or like get rid of it and then there's also people who are worshiping these things. So then it takes these personification component. And there's a really good book uh, of a gentleman that we interviewed on our show. And he talks about how even that brought about the idea of Jesus uh, sacrificial um, suffering and being redemptive because you're passing on these um, trespasses to a being to represent you. And then uh, there's all these stories where not only did the goat go into the desert, he was like thrown off a cliff. And the more he got beat up, the more your sins were taken away. And it's kind of like Jesus whippings. The more he suffered, the more uh, it became real. So again, it's, it's almost like trying to encapsulate all these uh, struggles that people have and trying to put it on something. And then later that something becomes a thing or a being. Uh, so not to be too psychological about it, but there are a lot of elements of human work, humans working out their own, um, insecurities, their own lack of, uh, feeling connected to God, their own into the personification of, of someone. So that's, that's where I, I say that we need to be cautious not to assume that Azazel is an actual being, because if we do, then it adds all kinds of other problems, including, where did he come from? What is his purpose? Why is he working with God? Why are these people talking about him? They never mentioned him before. And now he's a thing like, uh, and then that's where people start saying, well, maybe it comes from Egypt. Maybe it comes from Jethro and the people that lived in the desert. They had their own gods and their own ways of being. And they, and they mixed all those ideas together. So it's, it's very complicated. Yeah. I heard that the term scapegoat 
comes from that story where they attributed all their shortcomings and insecurities on that goat that they whipped and threw it off the cliff as a way to escape from, you know, whatever inner demons they were facing. But um, so that makes sense. I think there's like a area or Mount Azazel. I think that's a place. I have to look it up. Kabbalah. What is Kabbalah in the... how is that viewed in uh, traditional Judaism? Because I know they have a lot of spiritual aspects, use of amulets, talismans. What do you think? So I'm a purist about Kabbalah, and, and I always like to give people like the original definition of Kabbalah is um, a hidden revelation or it's, it's, a, it's, it's a knowledge base. It's almost like, um, not to compare it, but it's, in Gnosticism is knowledge, and Kabbalah is uh, something that is being revealed, something that is hidden that is revealed. So um, in traditional Jewish thought, Kabbalah could be the visions of uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah, where they see God sitting on a throne and they call it the chariot. Uh, that is the original Kabbalah. Later with mystics like um, the ones that live in, um, in um, Galilee, uh, in different areas, it became a, a thing on itself. So there's Kabbalistic writings there after the, the Talmud or around that time that took on a special um, like following. And then they developed and developed and more and more of them came about. And then it all culminated with the Sohar, which is a compilation of a bunch of different um, Kabbalistic writings. And some of them have problems with uh, the book, like they don't know where it came from or, or if it's authoritative or not. And other people think that it's heavenly and it came from a, a rabbi in the second century. So um, it becomes more and more incorporated into Judaism as time develops. And that's where um, each community has their own view. So some of them follow amulets and, and have superstitions related to those. And some of them don't. Some of them have like they use a lot of the name of God or the letters they have a value or uh, divine qualities. And then there's the, the emanations of God and all these other elements that are related to it. So uh, Kabbalah, modern day Kabbalah or, or medieval Kabbalah is more open to the mystical and they incorporate ideas related to the angels. Like you're supposed to write the name of four angels in the, in the crib of a baby to keep uh, Lilith away from killing the baby or taking the baby away. So, um, Although I'm not uh, as superstitious as, as, as the people who would be uh, big on that, I went ahead and wrote the names in English um, in the bed of, of my daughters to just in case. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think it's, it's, it's good to put yourself in the protection of, of God's um, agents and whatever happens is, is, is better to be in, in, the, in the good side of, of things. I understand that there's some references to um, spirits, maybe spirits of uh, deceased people, possessions, exorcism that are referenced in the Midrash. Part of your book title also talks about possession and exorcism. Can you expand on that for the listeners? Yes. So to me, that's a very interesting subject because, again, going back to movies and the way that it's depicted, Mm -hmm. it's really easy to fall into all kinds of craziness. And the Jewish uh, perspective is, is different. And a lot of times it seems like it's in contradistinction from the Christian one. But we know that uh, there's a story in Josephus that discusses um, 
someone being able to exercise a demon out of um, it's like a servant of, of Caesar uh, by using the ring of Solomon. So the same ring that Michael gave Solomon to be able to um, not only uh, engage the demons, but um, make them work for you. That same ring is used to take out the demon of the nostrils of one of the um, Bespian's uh, servants. So then at that time, they're still talking about demons. Later in the 16th century on, they talk about um, Devekut, or um, they, they're called um, a dibuk. So a dibuk is connected to the word Devekut means closeness or being connected to God. So they say Debekis in, uh, in Yiddish. So uh, a dibuk is someone who's close to you or connected to you. So it's almost like um, in, in, in Catholic or later, um, you know how people, they, they go to a clairvoyant and they say that the spirit of someone is hovering or whatever, or they get possessed by the spirit of a deceased loved one and then they speak through them. That's what the, the, it's supposed to be someone who died and didn't finish their job and they're stuck between worlds and they take a hold of someone and they, they, um, they possess them. So it's, so it's more the, the classical view of a possession where it's not a demon, it's actually um, a lasting soul, uh, a departed one who is between worlds and hasn't finished their, their mission in life. And then you would call a rabbi or a, a, a minion, a 10 Jews or a Jew who's very knowledgeable of the mystical um, sources, and they would pray Psalm 91 to get that, um, that soul to leave your body. So you have two souls in one body, and to me it becomes kind of fantastical. But that is, um, if you watch the movie The the Possession, that is the thing. The soul of someone got into the little girl, and, and it was causing problems, um, and then they were able to get her out. Uh, but in, in, in late, earlier sources, it was uh, uh, an angel or a, or a non-physical being. So um, that's, uh, that's the, the latest Jewish version of a possession has to do with um, a missing soul that, is, um, that has to be ex excised from your body. What is the Jewish perspective on the afterlife, right? You know, there's a clear concept of heaven and hell, you know, in Christianity and Islam. It, I, I think it's a little bit different in Judaism. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's, you know, the professor that, that I quote most uh, was a, a Kabbalist, and he said that uh, the traditional view is that um, people who are not living up to their the greatest um, self, that they go to hell for like 11 months, and then they get out. So it's almost like a, like a purgatory type of thing. But to me, it, it, it's, it sounds silly. It, it's almost like, um, on one hand, you have the the idea from the Christian and the Muslim perspective where someone's condemned forever and they lose all hope. And then on the other side, you have people say that everybody's forgiven. Then we came up with like somewhere in the middle where you purified and, uh, and, and finally God has mercy on you. And that's where there's also the Jewish concept of uh, people returning. Uh, it's more complicated than reincarnation, but it has to do with people not finishing their mission as well and, and having to be uh, purified through a, a different life and a different opportunity. Um, 
but they're all speculation. So I don't see anything in the Torah that describes anything fully. And that's what I tell people is that what we have from scripture, they're metaphors and they're images, but we don't have a full picture until we're actually there. So when someone dies, the way that I would give someone hope is to know that God is loving, God is merciful, and that you would be in his presence because he's everywhere in the universe. And maybe at death, you have more access to him. Uh, and that's what I see from the Hebrew scriptures. This, it says in Psalm 23 that we would dwell in the house of, the, of God forever. Uh, to me, that is a symbol of heaven, but it's not fully developed or fully uh, as it is in, in other traditions. And then it says in Isaiah that the wicked will perish and that they'll be in a place that the worm will not die. So that is a picture of hell or a eternal torment. But how can a soul uh, be tormented and how can there be worms when it's a non-physical thing? So in, in Jewish tradition, there's a concept of the or a new recreated world. And then there's the concept of the resurrection where it's similar to um, both other traditions where you come back and you get to face your maker and he gets to uh, decide what to do with you. So I kind of leave it up to God's hands and just knowing the values and the, and the principles from um, the authoritative sources such as the Torah that we know we're in good hands, that he'll, he'll figure it out and he'll take care of us uh, when our life ends. Just be the best you can be on, in this world, right? <laughs> so that's all you can do. Um, now, my understanding is, you know, the uh, res respected, renowned uh, Jewish rabbi uh, and philosopher, uh, I think he, came, he was in the 12th century, Maimonides, I might have pronounced the name wrong. He didn't believe in demons or demonology from the Judaic point of view. Is that your understanding? Yeah, and I heard a funny story from a, from a Chabad uh, rabbi, and Chabad is one of the most influential um, Hasidic groups out there, and they're trying to make sense of how if Maimonides, who's one of their main sources of Jewish law, didn't believe in demons or angels, and the Besht, which is um, the Baal Shem Tov, which is the founder of uh, Hasidism, believed in, in them, they came up with this thing where between Maimonides and the Besh, uh, we had demons and angels, but then they faded away. So it doesn't make any sense because Maimonides didn't believe in them in the 12th century, and then the Besh in the 16th century believed in them. So, so how did they end at the 16th century? But that's their way of saying, well, they were there, but they weren't really there. Or they're like, it's, it's kind of like them not talking about demons the way that they're described in the in the talmud or in the new testament because it is not helpful and it's also mm -hmm. not helpful people to be scared of demons and to feel that everything's related to them so it's better to um, to just dismiss it like oh it's a thing from the past so they've become more psychological about it like a lot of christian groups where they say well a demon is you being um selfish or being uh arrogant that's a demonic uh, component, but they've taken away the personification of it. So now it's more of a, a feeling or a negative uh, uh, attribute. And to me, that's playing games because if you're going to discuss any type of health and well-being, if you're going to be consistent to the sources, you should be discussing uh, angels and demons because they are related to them. And in Jewish uh, mystical uh, people, they say that 
every positive word that comes out of your mouth creates an angel and every negative word that comes out of your mouth uh, creates a demon. So Hilu um, Hashem is when you um, desecrate the name of God and um, and then the opposite would be um, when you sanct uh, it's something Kadush Hashem or something like that where you're uh, sanctifying the name of God uh, you are creating an angel. So there's little things like that that they still uh, believe in. Jews today in general, do they believe that there are spiritual demonic beings? You know, do they believe that if they don't intervene, at least they exist? Well, for a long, long time, nobody wanted to believe in that because almost like the Enlightenment um, and Maimonides took over Jewish thought. So part of being an intellectual religion was that we weren't into all that weird mystical stuff. Uh, ma magical things and then um, slowly it came back um, I don't know if it was an influence from the, the 60s or what but people have become a little more open to Kabbalah and to the mystical components so it depends on uh, the person and what they've uh, come across um, so there was a guy that grew up Hasidic and now he was mostly secular and he, he told me about this book called the 13 petals and i tried to read it and i didn't understand what it was about but it was um there's a mystical component of um the 13 um attributes of god or the sephirot and in the in the book it was trying to describe it in a very philosophical and almost like poetic way and it was really hard for me to comprehend even though i've read really thick um religious books so I think that um, there are people who are more rational than mystical or people like, that's why uh, it's interesting. We haven't discussed the name of your show and, and my show uh, <laughs> that uh, we want to be both mystic and skeptical in the sense of um, you draw a line. You don't just, um, people think that if someone's mystical, you believe all kinds of silly fairy tales. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, the balance comes with things that are, and there are they make sense like uh there are stories that are so far-fetched that make these uh, religious perspectives fantastical and i think that um that in my uh perspective it's not allowed because the moment it becomes fantastical then it becomes unreal and there's a difference between something being supernatural and something being uh mythological or uh almost nonsensical so you have to kind of walk on the, the tightrope to, to stay somewhere in the middle. Is there anything else that I, you know, I haven't asked that you'd like to add about demonology, demons, and that we can glean from your book? Well, I just want to uh, emphasize that the aspect of the rational thinking, because um, again, it's easy for someone to dismiss um, God and, and the belief in any type of spiritual realm because it's non-provable, like there's really nothing that, that can show that that stuff exists. But when you start studying religious anthropology, you see, like we've said throughout the show, that it, you're trying to describe very complicated, very difficult experiences. So if there was people who had a prophetic um, revelation, how would they convey that in, in human terms? And some of us have had glimpses of um, the spiritual um, 
world in the sense of feeling love, feeling compassion, but in a, in a very true sense, like everybody feels, um, you know, the good things that come from being alive and the, and the positive things from the natural world. But when you feel something that it is out of this world and you experience it in a way that it, that it creates a positive influence or even a negative one, that there has to be more, that, that it's not just uh, what you can measure and what you can describe through scientific method. So these guys uh, have so much wisdom in a time where there was barely any food to eat and barely any uh, communication and stuff like that. To me, there are timeless messages um, in these scriptures that um, they're very important. And you might find some message in mythology, like Freud did trying to incorporate mythology into his analysis or in different, um, you know, philosophical stuff. But what makes religion so powerful is that it has a very human element to it. So when you take away the human elements, when everybody becomes a superhero and every uh, religious um, leader is um, brought to this, this place of, of complete holiness, then it, it loses its power to me because now you, you can relate to it. Uh, so I, I hope that the same thing with demons and angels and the other aspects of it, that when they become uh, destructive, when you're, you're looking for a demon under every rock or you hear something in the attic and it scares you, you think that the house is haunted or something like that, that you're able to pull back and say, is that even possible? And is that even possible in connection with your religious tradition? So what I would encourage um, Jews, Christians, and Muslims is to look deeply into their religious tradition and see if hauntings, ghost apparitions, or even apparitions of religious folks or uh, messages from God and things like that are consistent with their uh, belief system. And some belief systems can be cherry pick and you can pick all the stuff that is negative and make it into a destructive form of your faith and you can also nitpick all the things that um, are uh, self-aggrandizing or um, cultic or, or you know or even positive you know you can only focus on, on all the passages that say that God loves you and forget that you are a human being that has a lot of issues and has to grow and, and be uh, challenged. But to have, like you said, this balance, this very um, like sober look at, at, at their faith w is very helpful and very healthy. So the more we question, the more we grow, the more we study, the more we challenge and um, scrutinize our uh, religious traditions, the more we're able to convey them to others as well and to find hope and meaning in them. But if we focus on all the stuff that is kind of strange and, and, and very difficult to, um, to explain, we can also go into um, a place of, of lack of understanding and lack of um, being able to enjoy life because we think that the angels and the demons and all the other creatures and beings are the ones calling the shots and we lose our ability to make good choices. So I want people to um, consider that and to take into um, incorporate into their lives um, the things that are the major elements of their religion versus the, the little 
things that you can debate about and fight over. And there's people who have lost all their uh, interest in, in whatever they grew up in because of one passage that was weird. Uh, the one passage that I have the hardest with is the one about angels uh, having babies with humans. But that's just one interpretation and one way to look at it. You can look at it 20 other different ways without it throwing off all the other things that are important and uh, special. So that's that's what I would like to share with the, the world this time. Thank you for that. Um, so if listeners want to uh, get a hold of your book, want to listen to your podcast or want to listen to your radio show, how can they do that? So uh, we're proud to have had our radio show uh, going for seven uh, years on Radio Free Nashville. You can look it up on RadioFreeNashville.org. It's uh, a place on Wednesdays at noon uh, uh, Central Time. You can also go on to Buzzsprout and look up uh, Mystic-Skeptic. Um, now, since we have uh, similar names, I, I call it RFNs, uh, Radio Free Nashville's uh, Mystic Skeptic Radio Show and Podcast. Or um, my book is available on Amazon as an um, ebook, and it's also on Audible as a narrated book by me. And um, I think that it's, um, it's good to, uh, to have a resource on that subject. Uh, and it's available for everyone. Um, so I, again, I appreciate you um, having me on your show. And if you guys have any questions or like to stay in touch, you can always reach me at mysticandskeptic at gmail.com. Great. Thank you. Everyone, that was David Daniel Gonzalez. And for our listeners, thank you for listening to Mystics and Skeptics. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and stay in peace, everyone.